You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Britvic, LVMH, Beavertree, Associated British Foods, Supreme, and our US company of the week is Netflix. Sam, do you want to kick us off with Britvic? Yes. So Britvic, one of our favourite soft drink providers on the show, have come out with a Q1 trading statement for the period ended 31 December 2023. And There's not a huge amount of information in this trading statement, I'm going to warn you, but revenue for the quarter is $443 and that's up 8.1% for the group as a whole. If we split that by geography, that's up 6.9% for Great Britain, 21% for Brazil, and 6% for other international. And that includes volume growth of 1.7% overall versus last year. They've said that for... Great Britain, both retail and hospitalities were in growth. And in Brazil, that 21% includes the benefits of a recent acquisition. It would be nice to know what the volume was doing because last time in Brazil, the revenue was basically flat, I think with some slight volume declines. And so it does look like the acquisition is what's got that back to growth, but we won't know until the full results come out. Other international, they've said that was that growth of 6% was led by Ireland, up 12.5%, and France was up 1.1%, with a strong price mix offsetting a volume decline. And they've said they've had the strong, strong December trading, with group revenue up 12.1% and volume up 6.4%, benefiting from light-for-light growth and recent acquisitions. For anyone not familiar with Britvic as well, they do have a nice little summary, which I'll read because there's so little else in the trading statement. They said, Britvic is an international soft drinks business founded in England in the 1930s. It has grown into a global organization with 39 much-loved brands sold in over 100 countries. The company combines its own leading brand portfolio, including Fruit Shoot, Robinsons, Tango, J2O, London Essence, Jimmy's Ice Tea, Tessier, Miwadi, with PepsiCo brands such as Pepsi 7up and Lipton Ice Tea which Britvic produces and sells in Great Britain and Ireland under exclusive agreements. Britvic is the largest supplier of branded still soft drinks in Great Britain and the number two supplier of branded carbonated soft drinks in Great Britain. I wonder who number one could be. Mm. They are an industry leader in the island of Ireland with brands such as Miwadi and Ballygowan. In France, with brands such as Tessier, Prasad and Moulin de Valdon. And in its growth market, Brazil, with Maguai, Maguari... Bella, Ichia, and Defruta. Britvic is growing its reach into other territory, territory through franchising, export, and licensing. In terms of valuation, the business trades up here of 14.4 and has a yield of 3.47. I don't think there's loads in this statement. I, I think it will be better when we get the results because I do think it makes a big difference how the volumes are doing. So last time it was mainly price increases. It does Some of the stuff they've said does hint that it's the same again. I would really like the Brazil figures because if that's got back to like-for-like like volume growth, I think that would be excellent. But we, we just won't know until we've got the figures. But revenue on the surface looks pretty good. Hopefully the volumes are doing a bit better as well. John, what are your thoughts on this trading statement and the valuation? Yeah, I think it was interesting. Certainly on the surface of it, it sounds good. I'd be very interested to hear 
a bit more detail on what was going on in Brazil, because I think for Britvic, that was the really exciting part of it. And certainly when you compared it with AG Bar. So I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be a case of waiting for the full breakdown, quite honestly. But otherwise, I like it as a company. What did you say the valuation was in terms of the earnings multiple? 14 and a half. 14. I think that's fair. I think that's the fair. yield's decent, three and a half percent. Yeah, it's it's a company I, I like quite a lot. Don't They're really buying back shares as well, so the, yeah. the actual yield's a bit higher. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's good. It's been on the watch list for a long time, but perhaps better companies out there. Yeah, I agree. The last couple of years, although we're excited about Brazil, I don't feel like it's really delivered so far. It's like even if you look at this statement. It seems like the Brazil growth has come through an acquisition, which is fine. Yeah. But it's not like it's absolutely, you know, just growing like crazy. Now, the problem is yeah. if it did start to, <laughs> the yeah. PD would go up as well. Uh, exactly. But exactly. at the minute, it's kind of priced, I think, as if Brazil's not really going to do very much. So no, you could quite. take a punt on it and probably do quite well if Brazil did what you'd hoped, but... So far, we've just not seen... You've sort of seen glimpses of it, but I, I don't feel like Brazil's... They've really unlocked the growth in Brazil that they'd like to yet. But. No, absolutely. I would I would completely agree with you there. Shall we move on to a more expensive business? Yes, considerably more expensive business, but not the most expensive business we're going to be covering this week. Anyway, LVMH. So it owns Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Moe, Tiffany. It has... A lot of those luxury brands, sort of top label luxury brands that you might think of, they're all under this fantastic portfolio. Well, this fantastic business that owns that portfolio. It's historically done very well, but as we've experienced the cost of living crisis and some of that change in the economic cycle, it has suffered a little bit. Anyway, it's come out and it's had its full year results with organic revenue growing by 14% to 62.2 billion euros in the first nine months of the year, which marks a slowdown from the 17% growth seen in the first and second quarters. The biggest division, fashion and leather goods, saw revenue grow 16% to 30.9 billion pounds, reflecting strong performance in leading brands, including Louis Vuitton. All other business areas saw growth apart from Wines and Spirits, which had tough comparative periods and Hennessy demand moderated, partly due to the economic environment. Watches and jewellery was another slow grower, but strong demand for the Sephora products meant that selective retailing revenue rose 26%. LVMH said that it had confidence in achieving growth, but acknowledged the uncertain economic conditions. And the shares were down about 6% on the results. In terms of the valuation, the group has a market cap of 386 billion euros and trades at 21 times forward earnings compared with a 10-year average of 23. And it has a yield of 2%. I thought these results were a bit disappointing, but it is in that sort of wide, you know, the wider context. And overall... I think pr- still pretty pretty good, but I guess when you've got such a high quality business and it has historically been so highly valued and it's slightly cheaper than its ten year average, you know it does have to keep delivering. And I think one thing to be said for LVMH is when comparing it with another company that we cover, which 
arguably is in the same industry, but probably, well, definitely not at the same level, Burberry, these are better figures. And I think for, if you look at the long-term growth, it's continuing to deliver and that it's very defensive in many ways with those brands that they hold. And they often, well, almost always are best in class. It's, I think it's very difficult to price that. And I don't think even with the slightly reduced numbers, 21 times earnings is too much. It does make you feel a bit nervous with your own money. But actually, if you take the long, the longer term view with it, it's such high quality. And it's recently, I know it's taking on a bit of debt to do so, but bought the Tiffany brand, which again, you would argue iconic and definitely fits in in the stable so probably quite a smart acquisition obviously something for the the much longer term and i know it's been difficult in the watches and jewelry environment at the moment i can't comment exactly you know on how much they pay for tiffany it's not an industry i know well but for the longer term and if they bought it you know towards or in a difficult part of the cycle then it may well turn out to be a, a very good price, even if they've taken on debt to do it. Sam, what are your thoughts on LVMH? I don't think they're terrible results. I know it's a slight drop in the growth, but 14% growth is still very good and it is above inflation and it just speaks to the pricing power that the brands have. I think at 21 times earnings, I think when you're taking, I mean, I, I wouldn't, quite want to pay 20 to one times earnings for this business but i think in the current environment in the current market if you look at other businesses and competitors it's like i don't know what burberry's trading at, at the minute but it's usually quite a bit cheaper so like, should it be trading at more than burberry in terms of pe yes it absolutely should a similar not similar but in terms of we, we do a lot of consumer goods and nestle is one that's very high quality puts up the results that trades at about sort of 24 25 times earnings and has lower growth it's more like sort of 10 percent a year recently in the last few years so when you compare lvmh at 21 with 14 percent growth i think in the context of the market it's in i don't think it's that expensive but i think it's a business that at the right price i'd love to own but i, th I think you might have to wait years to get the price you'd actually want for it but I, I think in the current market, 21 times earnings for a business of this quality, consistently putting up these kinds of results is not unreasonable. Shall we move on to another company that we've covered quite a few times, Fevertree? Yes. So Fevertree have come out with their full year results and full year revenue rose by around 6%, so £364 million, excluding exchange rate impacts. This was largely driven by a 24% uplift in US sales, which more than offset a 1% decline in the UK. Market share grew across all key regions. Underlying cash profit doubled in the second half due to operational cost-cutting efforts, which helped to offset material inflationary cost pressures. Full-year underlying cash profits are expected to come in at around 30 million, right at the bottom of the previously lowered 30 to 36 million guidance range. In 2024, Fevertree expects full-year revenue to rise by 8%. Underlying cash profit margins are expected to rise to about 15%. The shares fell 2.8% following the announcement. Currently, about 80% of Fevertree sales are bottled in glass, which means that energy prices and glass costs do have yeah. a material impact on their costs. And that's combined with higher shipping costs as well. So margins have been squeezed in the last couple of years. 
sales in the US and Europe have now passed pre-COVID levels and US growth has now become the largest region by sales. And that's only just overtaken the UK. So I, I think that's still got a lot of scope to grow. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a forward P of 28.8, and that compares to an average forward P since listing in 2015 of 46. The prospective yield is 1.8%, and that compares to an average since listing of 0.8%. So I think these results are pretty good. I think 6% revenue rise is all right. I, th- I think really, my view looking at it is, well, the, the UK and Europe is probably pretty saturated now. The, any future growth probably has to come from the US. So a 24% uplift in US sales... I thought was very good. I did tweet about it and I did get a very valid comment from the quality small cap investor who is at growth underscore invest number one. And he said, well, how much of the US sales growth is just recovery from the glass shortages as opposed to proper growth, which I think is a valid point. However, I still think if you compare fever tree in the UK compared to the US, it's pretty obvious which one is closer to saturation. And I don't think it's the US. I also think that it initially looked quite expensive at 28 times earnings. But then if you look at the share price, it's down 61% over five years, 57% over three years, 55% over two years, 12.5% over one year and 22.5% over six months. If you then go and look at the last five years results, so we've not got the operating profit, or I've not, I've not gone into the operating profit, I've given the EBITDA, but that's, that's broadly in line with the operating profit anyway. But in the year ended December 2022, the previous year, operating profit was pretty similar at 30.6. But then if you go back, it's actually dropped off massively since COVID. So although the revenue is up, the margins have just been hammered by a, a lot of the issues we previously talked about. At the minute, so in the, not this year, but the year before, they had operating profit of 30.6 million on 344 million of revenue, which sounds pretty similar to these results. If you go back to 2018, they did 75 million operating profit off 100 million less revenue. So the operating profit is down since 2018, even though revenue has gone up by 100 million. And a lot of that is stuff like the shipping, the glass, the energy costs. But if you assume that they can get their operating profit back to 2018 levels. And that would still be at a lower margin because it's ignoring the fact that revenue has gone up by about 40%. It would be trading at a, po- a forward PE of something like 12. Mm. Yeah. So I think if you think the margin squeezes are temporary, I actually think it's very cheap. And it's quite a bit cheaper than last time we covered it. So it's down 23% in the last six months. I think when you look at, instead of looking at the forward PE, which is assuming that these margins don't recover, which they probably won't in the next 12 months. But I think in the longer term, I think they can get the margins back under control. Yes, it might be cyclical and fluctuate, but I actually think at a forward PE of 12, well, not a forward PE of 12, but call it a historic PE of 12, if you're assuming they can get the margins back to where they were. In fact, they wouldn't even be back to where they were, like I mentioned, because that, that ignores 100 million of extra revenue. So that's actually still significantly lower margins. But I actually think it's pretty cheap. Yeah, I, I'm pretty close to taking a nibble on this, actually. <laughs> what do you think, John? Um, I, I like it as a company. I think it's fantastic. And obviously, we have had the diff- or they have had the difficulties which we've discussed previously. The exciting thing is clearly the the potential in the US, and it's interesting your analysis on it there because that does if that is correct then it's much more attractive on a valuation from a valuation perspective 
for a company that on the surface has appeared extraordinarily expensive for a number of years. It is tempting. It's very tempting. And it's an AIM qualifying company. I think it's an AIM company, isn't it? It is, yes. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know whether I'd be brave enough myself, but it's very tempting. So my biggest concern, now I, I do, like I say, I'm probably closest, the closest I've ever been to having a nibble. But my biggest concern is it's a stock that's down since its peak, about two thirds. Mm. And we are pinning a lot of hope on the future growth from the US. Yeah. Aim listed. Does it remind you of another stock? We yeah. It was down two thirds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's 17 times earnings. It seemed cheap, didn't it? Yeah. So the thing is, you it could still drop a long way. Because if they don't get these margins under control, yeah. it is expensive. Yeah. Which is much. why that forward PE is so high. Um, yeah. And actually, it could, you know, it, it could drop by another two thirds. That's well, the problem. Could, yeah. So I'm a it bit cautious having had my fingers burnt on Boohoo. Now, I think Fever Tree is a higher quality brand than Boohoo. Absolutely. Which does help it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm closer than I've ever been. I don't think I'd do anything before the ISA, but before the, the new tax year, because I need to wait for like my license to reset anyway. But even then, I don't know if I'd want to give it another six months and just have another look at it. But I, I'm definitely the closest I've ever been. Yeah, it, it, it's all very, always very true. It's just taking that initial position in it. Okay. Should we move on to another business that we've uh, historically oh. liked? Yeah, and this, we would argue, is a higher quality business. It's associated British Foods. It's the owner of Primark and British Sugar. They had a second quarter trading statement out with revenue rising 5.4% to £6.9 billion in the 16 weeks to the 6th of January, ignoring the impact of exchange rates. And this reflected growth in all aspects of the business except for agriculture, which saw a decline of 10.8% due to weak compounded feed markets. On a like-for-like basis, Primark sales rose 2.1%, driven by higher average selling prices, and sales at the start of the period were slow but have since improved due to recent cold temperatures. Group profitability is being driven forward by a recovery in Primark's margin and the improved British sugar profitability as production increased towards historic levels. ABF is confident that it can deliver on a full year underlying operating margin of 10% at Primark, up from 8.2% in the prior year as material and freight costs ease. And the shares were broadly flat on the results. In terms of valuation, the group has a market cap of £17 billion and trades at 12.7 times forward earnings with a prospective dividend of 2.7%. I thought these results were fair. I think they, the group's been very resistant, you know, it, given the, the wider climate and has been delivering historically. I think these were perhaps, you know, a slightly lacklustre. And I think on the surface, we've talked about ABF before not appearing to have you know huge amounts of growth ahead of it, certainly in the UK. But the exciting prospect for ABF was Primark growth, particularly in the States, where like Fever Tree, it's by no means saturated and the potential for growth there. And that being you know the, the real driver for the investment case 
in terms of the British sugar business, I think that's come under the spotlight more recently as a result of the health, the new health sector. Victoria Aitken, whose husband actually is the boss and heads up British Sugar. And <laughs> whether that's a favourable tailwind for the company as well is perhaps a moot point. I do like ABF and it remains on, remains on my watch list. Share prices recovered a lot in the last year or so. And I sort of kind of kicking myself. I, I didn't take a, a punt on it then, but I, I do still think it's got long-term tailwinds and its potential growth in the States. Sam, what are your thoughts? Are you optimistic about the future of ABF and Primark? Yeah, I like it. It's it's quite a cheap valuation, but a lot of elements of this business are quite cyclical. That being said, if they can get an underlying operating margin at 10% of 10% at Primark, I think for the, the industry they're in, that would be really good and does show just what a good operator they are. Because 10% in that kind of in sort of that low low-end retail it is tough oh yeah so that that would be very very impressive i mean i think 8.2 percent in the prior year is pretty decent <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> but 10 would be fantastic yeah i i kind of agree with you i i think it's still at a reasonable price now if the u.s were to start growing faster now the u.s is encouraging but it's slow growth so far mm. they're not they're taking the time opening stores or they have accelerated in the last sort of year or two it's slow growth well, it's 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 reasonably priced, but then you know it's only put five percent growth up. So that's probably I think the valuation is pretty fair. But I, I kind of I do agree with what you said. I think if we'd been smart, we'd have bought it a year, you know, six, twelve <laughs> months ago, whenever it was, you know, down at like fifteen pounds a share rather than twenty two. Yeah. yeah. But never mind, we're here now. <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay. What about Supreme then? Yes. So, Supreme, a business we've covered multiple times. It is in our fantasy portfolio as well now. I think it might have already been in. Was it already in or did we add it for the first time? I can't remember. But anyway, it's definitely, definitely yeah. in now. I think first, I think it's just been added. Okay. Well, our new a new addition to our fantasy portfolio, Supreme. So, they are... Well, they are a leading manufacturer, supplier, and brand owner of fast-moving consumer goods. Although in recent years... It's been more and more a vaping story. So on the 29th of January, Supreme came out with a trading update, and they have said that they have delivered an excellent trading performance across the group during the historically busiest quarter. It's now expected that the 2024 financial year will significantly outperform market expectations, with revenue projected to be at least $225 million, and adjusted EBITDA anticipated to reach at least $38 million, a doubling from last year's. This success highlighted the group's continued strategic development and record levels of organic growth across its core business divisions, including vaping and sports nutrition and wellness. The Elf Bar distribution opportunity is now expected to significantly exceed previously issued guidance in the 2024 financial year. Supreme notes the government's proposal to ban disposable vape devices. So this statement came out the same day as the government's proposal. As part of a number of initiatives announced today to seek to mitigate an underage vaping. As a business, Supreme welcomes this clarity and as a responsible business remains ahead of the curve, having already implemented a number of proactive measures, including narrowing and renaming of flavours and tailoring packaging as part of an ongoing commitment to eradicate underage vaping and continuing to, to support adult smokers by providing an affordable, sustainable, safer alternative to smoking. 
Supreme remains confident that vaping is and will continue to be the most credible and effective alternative to cigarettes. Supreme has an established suite of fully compliant rechargeable pod systems, produces over 60 million 10 milliliter bottles of e-liquid annually, and has already become a principal supplier to the UK government's swap to stop scheme. None of these revenue streams are expected to be adversely affected by the changes proposed by the government earlier today. Building on our operational success and strategic response to regulatory change and the board's ongoing confidence in the business, Supreme proposes to launch up to £1 million share buyback programme over the next three months. This initiative reflects the board's confidence in the company's future value and our dedication to enhancing shareholder returns. The company expects that approximately 75 million of its revenues, 33%, and 9 million of adjusted EBITDA, 23%, will be derived from disposable vapes in the 2024 financial year. Looking to the 2025 financial year, the board believes the anticipated ban on disposable vapes by the end of 2025 is expected to cause a temporary increase in revenue as retailers roll out replacement vaping devices such as pod pod system vaping devices and refillable vape kits. The company expects that more than half of disposable vape activity will permanently transition to alternative forms of vaping such as pods and 10 milliliters, and Supreme will work closely with its retail partners to manage this seamlessly. The board will continue to evaluate the ongoing impact of new regulations within the UK e-cigarette market as more clarity, particularly in respect of timing, is published. In terms of the valuation, the shares were actually up on the announcement, which I kind of thought this would take a hammering on the announcement of the disposable vape ban, but I guess the statement is that strong that it, it's, it was actually up. So for the week, they're up 9%, and they now trade at a P of 9.7 with a yield of 2.6%. I thought the trading statement was excellent. You can't knock the figures at all. Mm. I mean, it's not too bad, is it? Because if only 23% of the EBIT is actually coming from the disposables, over half of that is expected to move to non-disposable products. And that's higher margin anyway. Yeah. I think one thing that's really worked in their favor is any acquisitions they've done of like vaping companies has been quite small. They had the health deal maybe like six, 12 months ago, but that's just yeah. for the distribution. So that's something they can just turn on and off. It's not like they've sunk a load of money into buying it because I think Elf is basically entirely a disposable story. And they've said previously on earnings calls that Elf dominates the UK vaping market. So at the minute, they're getting that revenue from doing the distribution. But when that switches off, it's not like they've sunk a load of money into Elf. It's just they've had a few years of it. They'll probably get a nice spike in the final year as well. And really, in terms of the transition, it's Elf's problem. Because yeah. I don't think Elf has that business they can just move it over to in the same way that Supreme does. So they will obviously be affected. But by the sounds of it, you know, it sounds like it's a very limited effect. And this is very, very rough calculations. But if you say 23% of EBITDA is coming from that, over 50% is expected to move over. Maybe a 10%, 10% of EBITDA would be lost. But it's going to be moving over to higher margin. It excludes any growth in the market anyway. So you might only have by the end like a 5% drop that year in EBITDA because it was the va- the disposables are lower margin anyway. And they've said historically that they don't think they'd be that adversely affected because it would just push people to higher margin products, which is they've sort of doubled down on here. Now, these changes by the government are meant to come in in 2025. We may have a different government at that point. However, as we were discussing off air, this isn't the kind of policy I would see Labour having an issue with I, I think whichever party's in power it's probably just safe to assume that some kind of disposable ban will be going ahead in the next few years in terms of valuation it's trading at a p of 9.7 i don't think the business is going to be that adversely affected by the sounds of this statement they're still growing very very well 
I think, you know, even with this total ban, I, I still think it's a very cheap stock, which is obviously why we put it in the fantasy portfolio. I didn't expect the stock to be up on this announcement, but I guess you can see why it is because there's been so much uncertainty for so long that at least we have clarity and it does seem like this was already priced in. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, similarly. And I think just going on from what you've said, vaping is still very much a growth trend. And I think you've seen as well in the last week or so, Cancer Research UK coming out and saying that they you know, they don't want vaping bans or, you know, full on vaping bans to be brought in because actually you've got the sort of harm reduction arguments and people being able to move to vaping as a less harmful alternative to smoking. So whilst there may be, you know, an argument to remove these single use and disposable vapes and perhaps being stricter about the you know them being sold to people which is already under uh, against the law but under 18 then actually this shouldn't really as you said make very much difference to supreme and in the longer term if there is, if that shift continues which i think most commentators would probably expect it to continue then it does make supreme look actually really pretty cheap And I think it's also when you've got groups like Cancer Research UK coming out and sort of putting the case for vaping forward, it it does kind of strengthen the position of a company like Supreme too. I think the interesting thing as well is I did read an article about, so Australia have done a similar thing and theirs has not gone very well at all in that it it just seems to push people towards the black market vapes. Yeah, yeah. What kind of impact it already had, it's going to have, I don't know. But the thing is, like a lot of it, you know, when you see the big vapes where it's like the 3,000 puff ones, they're already illegal. So if oh, you interesting. see, so the, so the maximum legal limit is something like six to 700 puffs. But most vapes you will see on a night out, they're the big sort of square ones that yeah, are like yeah, 3,000 yeah. puffs. And if, if you had, someone's already sold them an illegal vape, yeah, I don't see what difference a ban actually has. It's just yeah. all you're doing is cutting off the people buying the legal vapes. So, for example, you know, like one use case that they frequently comment is, you know, if you're quitting smoking and you've moved to your vapes and you're out for the day and your your vape your rechargeable vape dies during the day, you can't charge it till you get home. Yeah. And if, if you really feel like you need like your nicotine, you've basically got two choices at the minute. You either buy a disposable or you buy a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. And at the minute, that will just push you towards the cigarettes. There's pros and cons and everything. And obviously one of the cons is you do have like underage people vaping. But a lot of those people, like you say, it's still currently illegal to sell a vaping product to someone under 18. So I do wonder how much of these underage sales are the illegal vapes that would continue to probably be sold anyway. Yeah. But we'll find and- out. I suppose policymakers as well don't want to discourage the vaping to the extent that smoking sales or or tobacco revenue or tobacco volumes, I should say, are growing as a result because, you know, vaping is being so vilified that mm. young people are then just saying, oh, well, I, I think I better, better just have like, you know, some belief or something. Yeah, it will be very interesting to see what effect this has, because I'm sure there will. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just the nature of a policy like this. There will be unintended consequences, whether yeah. those are you know good or bad. We, we don't know, but I'm sure yeah. it will continue yeah. to be an interest, an industry that's interesting to cover. Absolutely. And and you, you did see, I think, back in sort of 20, around 2013 in the UK, when they, the government, I think David Cameron, introduced plain, package, uh, plain packages for cigarettes that actually it just made the counterfeiting problem 
quite a lot worse. And there hasn't been really any good evidence to show that it's, you know, reduced the number of people smoking. Obviously, the number of people smoking was declining anyway. But what it did make it easier for is for counterfeit cigarettes to come in because actually they didn't need to bother with a fancy branding. It Mm. was just plain text and a plain mouldy green colour on the packets. So again, unintended consequences. Yeah, I'd never, I actually hadn't thought about that. But yeah, if you if you gave us a box the right size and a printer, yeah. <laughs> we could give you like a, like a very, very convincing counterfeit. And then, of course, the government isn't getting all of that tax revenue from that. So, But that, that was one of the other things, though. They're not currently taxing the vapes like they are the cigarettes. And I, I don't think they should yet. You want them to get to us. You want more people smoking them or using them before you start upping the taxes. But that was an, that's another lever they're still yet to pull. Yeah. And again, it's like if you were to, to to pull the tax lever on them, it's then making it sort of, well, little difference between that and buying a packet of cigarettes, which isn't their ideal situation if you're looking at it from a public health perspective. But I guess how much cheaper, because it, it's an addictive product. So how much cheaper does it actually need to be for you to do it? Because at the minute, it's, it is considerably, considerably cheaper if you're using a rechargeable one, over 90%. If it was 50% cheaper instead, and they were taxing it loads, but not as much as cigarettes, would people buy it anyway? Mm. And would you get to a point where, although the hardcore adult smokers are still willing to pay it because there's a saving to cigarette, cigarettes, you might price the kids out because <laughs> they can't afford it. I see. What, uh, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, because it's, it's like if you're 16, you've got less money. If you only have to pay like a few quid for a disposable vape, if all of a sudden it's 20 quid and in line with a pack of fags, yeah. you've really got to think about the decision more. Is <laughs> <laughs> you know, based on what we've seen with cigarettes, is if they were to tax it, now I think it would impact the growth because at the minute there is such a saving from switching to vaping. But the majority of the tax, well, all the tax, based on what we've seen with cigarettes, would just be passed on to the consumer. It wouldn't yeah. really affect a company like Supreme that much in terms of their margins, I don't think. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It would it would absolutely be passed on. And then if you if you looked at it again from sort of public health point of view, the sorts of people it'd be probably quite regressive mm. in terms of how it was going to or the people it was going to be hitting. Yeah. All right. Shall we uh, move on to another favorite of the show now? <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a favourite of the show. We cover it every 12 weeks. Yeah, we we cover it. It doesn't mean we like it. So Netflix had their fourth quarter subscriber figures out, which were better than analysts expected, up 12.8% to total number of subscribers to 260.3 million, with revenue rising 12.5% to $8.8 billion, which was also ahead of expectations. Performance was being helped by the effect of the password sharing lock. I was going to say lockdowns, crackdowns, and operating profit up one and a half billion from five hundred fifty million dollars in the previous year. Netflix generated free cash flow of six point nine billion dollars for the year as a whole, and net debt stood at eleven point nine billion dollars at the end of the period. That includes short-term obligations for content. The group's cheaper ad-supported tier is expected to grow strongly this year, but from a smaller base. And Netflix expects double-digit revenue growth for the full year and has upgraded its operating margin forecast to 24% from between 22 and 23%. And the shares were up 8.6% in early trading. 
In terms of valuation, Netflix has a market cap of $244 billion and trades at 30 times forward earnings. I mean, clearly these results were really good. It has been a very tough couple of years for Netflix and struggling with the subscribers. It's now really delivering on the growth there. I think it's it's tough. They clearly aren't able to just continuously hike their subscription fees without you know drop, dropping subscribers. I think it's been become very clear from that in the last couple of years. And then it's changed drastically in the last couple of years, again, with Apple TV coming in, with Disney Plus. There's so much more competition in the market. But it's delivering in terms of the growth now and the profits. I think what would worry me about Netflix is that it's a much more mature business now and it's still very expensive at 30 times forward earnings. I think there are lots of risks, including all of that extra competition. It has to spend it a, a lot still on the content. And I think with those things there and it's being trading at such a premium, it would probably put me off owning it. It's a stock that, given how big the market cap of it is, that I'll ha- you know I have in my own sort of passive portfolios. But buying it as an individual stock, n- not for me. I I agree. I actually think these results were really really good. I think to grow twelve point eight percent from the base they've had, and like you say, after after a couple of years they've had, I think they've done really really well with that. The problem is thirty times earnings is expensive, and I don't think they have anywhere near the kind of moat that I thought they had two or three years ago. I think the content ages incredibly fast. A lot of their content will have like a four or five year shelf life. Really, they have to keep spending basically twenty billion dollars a year on the content, and that's fine if you get enough subscribers because you get to a point where you can put up enough content for everyone to watch and the extra subscribers are just really they're just pure profit but the content ages incredibly quickly and i think two or three years ago you could look at it and you could look at competitors and you could say well actually how many companies are there that can afford to spend 20 25 billion dollars a year on content and that 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 scale did give them a kind of moat now i can name two companies that can afford to do that apple and disney can and i think now the thing with apple is i think they, they probably do have to spend quite a lot on their content I don't think Disney does because Disney's IP is so much better than everyone else's. I think they could spend five, ten billion on content. And we've actually seen that Iger is, you know, now starting to cut the costs on it and just producing a smaller number of high quality shows. But I think you're at a point where, you know, it doesn't have anywhere near the kind of moat. Because if they have two or three quarters where the content just doesn't hit, you know, and they don't have a squid game in there or something like that where everyone's talking about it, people will just drop off. And then a few months later, if they put out a hit show, they will drop back in. And they will watch the show for a few months and then they might switch. And that that is the way it is now. Well, not unfortunately, it's great for the <laughs> consumer. But you can watch, you know, you can pay for a month of Disney, watch the shows that you've missed in the new series, and then switch to Netflix because they've got something you like or there's a new series of something that you like. Rather than pay for both of them all year round when you're only really watching one at a time. I don't use Netflix, although my, my girlfriend does have it, so I use hers. But... <laughs> On Disney, I've previously paid annually for Disney, and this year it's going up from 80 to 120. And at 80, I didn't mind just paying for a full year, whereas at 120, I thought, well, actually, I'm only watching this for Star Wars shows. There's a new Star Wars show out maybe every three or four months. Why am I paying for this for a full year when I can just cancel it, pay for one month when there's a couple of Star Wars shows out, and then drop it for six months and save, you know, 
60 100 quid a year so that's what i'll be doing going forward and i'm I, and there will be other people doing the same where they chop and change between them so because because those subscribers are just so, it's so easy to switch I don't think there's anywhere near the kind of moat that I think a lot of people think it has. I think at 30 times earnings, although it's a great business and I think they are they have put up a very good set of results, I don't think there's a moat there. So I, I would not buy it. So yeah, pretty much echo what you said, John. Fine. Of the companies this week, then, what would your top pick be? And what what's in last place? Top pick's tough, actually. I'd probably go with Supreme. I think if we were doing the fancy portfolio again today, Supreme would still be going back in even after this announcement, especially you know with, with all the stuff in that earnings statement. And I think if you compare that to ABF, you know, obviously Supreme has far higher growth prospects. I think Fever Tree. I think Fever Tree is higher risk than Supreme somehow <laughs> despite supreme <laughs> being in an industry that's so heavily rate i think fever tree i do like the valuation i'm close to having a nibble but you know in my own personal portfolio i would top up supreme probably over buying fever tree which is maybe what i may do in the next few months um i don't actually i don't think i would add supreme because of how big a position it is but if i was starting from scratch probably supreme least favorite i i think they're all good companies my least favorite would probably actually be Netflix because of valuation and the concerns concerns I have about the moat. Whereas I think with Fever Tree, although it has some issues, if it can solve those, I actually think you could do very well on it going forward. What about you? I would probably go for LVMH as my top pick, and and probably Netflix. That would be least favorite, and it's the valuation really that gets me on it. Is LVMH in the fancy portfolio? Did we put that in as well? Yeah, we did. We did. All oh, right. So two fancy portfolio stocks this week. Oh, three. ABF's in there. <laughs> very good. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.